City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Hello, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR and we're back this week for one of our fourth Wednesdays of the month where we do something a little bit different. I'm Zeb and instead of Kevin in the studio, we have Karina. (laughs) It's me. I'm here and I'm unruly. Kevin's on holidays and he's outside the city limits, so we're going to break some city limits rules this morning. And instead of pouring a tea, I'm going to be blasphemous. While the cat's away, the mice will pour a goddamn coffee. That's right. And hopefully, Kevin, you are managing to listen mm. despite your Luddite ways. <laughs> yeah, well, today's program actually was in part decided to be a special for Kevin and people like Kevin who strategically avoid technology. Um, We'll be playing audio, as regular listeners may already know, from an online forum hosted by Rahu and 3CR um, together with some organisations like Homes Not Prisons and the Support Network for International Students. Um, But it was an online forum. So... For those who missed it, I selected some audio and we'll be playing the first half of that sort of in its entirety and then for the tail end of the program include like a Q&A or Ask Me Anything session hosted by Rahu's Renters Rights Support team. So involving members of the public and in particular um, one of the members of the Geelong Housing Action Group that I think really sparked some some good conversation and some good calls to action. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, and it's it's great. This forum um, includes so Homes Not Prisons and the Support Network for International Students have both been like they've both started up really recently in response to the international students like all of the, thi- of the things that they faced um, with the pandemic and, and the government. lack of support. Exactly. And Homes Not Prisons uh, in response to the Victorian government announcing the expansion um, to the Dame Phyllis Frost Max Security Women's Prison. Ugh. So, I mean, both of those things are not good, but mm. it's great to, like, see new organisations and, like, fresh energy coming to the scene um so it'd be really good to hear from both of those yeah and Rahu as well actually started up during the pandemic right and that's some of the great part of uh, these these organizations coming together and talking about uh some of the collective struggles that they face and stuff because we think about the way that uh migrants cop the brunt of you know, lack of support or exploitation of people within the prison industrial complex system and and, and we think about like, well, these aren't accidents or individual issues. They're literally part of the, the kind of insidious foundation upon which our society is built. Mm-hmm. So 
yeah, just very inspired by the element of collectivism in there and, you know, we're all under the boot. Having prepared some of this audio, I'm not a betting man but I'm pretty confident that listeners will also feel inspired to join Rahu and get involved as well. Exactly. Yeah, so this forum, Housing Justice After Lockdown, was hosted by Priya Kunjan from Tuesday Brekkie as well as Women on the Line. And the panellists included Irini Talitis-Noyce, uh, as well as Sara Stilianos and Nesca Vanso. So let's hop straight into it. Uh, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR Community Radio. Stay tuned. So the legislative, economic and public health fallouts of the COVID-19 pandemic have served to both expose and intensify the systemic failures that are inherent in Australia's housing system. And we saw this play out across the country, uh, but of course, we're all likely most familiar with the immediate effects in NARM, Melbourne, which endured, as you know, the world's longest lockdown. And no doubt this was extremely tough, but the crisis has also spurred grassroots organizing and collective action among renters, and significantly the, the 2020 rent strike, which ultimately led to the formation of the Renters and Housing Union, Rahu. And since then, the union has campaigned for rent relief, has led the way in calling for an eviction moratorium, and has supported individual renters in clawing back over $100,000. I just also quickly wanted to shout out the tireless housing justice work of folks from culturally and linguistically diverse communities who have worked to make sure that community members have been heard, supported and resourced during some of the darkest days of the pandemic, particularly the work of African community groups during the public housing lockdowns in 2020. And housing justice work is happening all around us with varying degrees of visibility. And I just think it's so important that we keep working to build towards a future uh, with safe and accessible housing for all uh, across all different kinds of housing as well. So we're going to begin with a panel discussion um, where our panelists will speak about how their organizations fought related but separate battles for housing rights during the evolving crisis, uh, reflect on the lessons learned and collectively imagine a just housing system post lockdown. I am joined by Rahu General Secretary Irene Salidis Noyce, Interim Coordinator with the Support Network for International Students Nescavanzo and steering group member for Homes Not Prisons, Sara Stelianos. And I'd like to thank you all very much for making the time to speak tonight. And I want to invite you all to briefly introduce yourselves, your groups, and to share your reflections on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on your organizing. So Irene, could you start by introducing Rahu and tell us a bit about why you and the team organized tonight's event? Absolutely. And thanks so much, Priya, for paneling this awesome event. I'm really, really excited and really um, honoured to be able to be joined by so many amazing women um, and non-binary folks um, involved in this panel. I'd like to firstly acknowledge that I'm calling in from Wurundjeri land, um, unceded lands, and pay my respects to elders and ancestors past and present. Um, A lot of the work that we do in Rahu, obviously being around housing and place, We always try and remember that we're doing this on stolen land and in saying that uh, we pay the rent as part of the commitment to join the struggle for decolonisation but also to understand that the lands that we're living on, we're paying rent to landlords who also benefit from a system that has disempowered and dispossessed First Nations peoples across the continent. So important to to mention that... um, a lot of the work we do in that area is around trying to shift the conversation 
towards sovereignty and towards land back. And I'll just briefly talk a little bit about kind of why we put on this event. And um, we're really, really grateful to have Ness and Sarah from Support Network for the International Students and from Homes Not Prisons from Sarah, because I think that a lot of the work that we were involved in over COVID from last year and, and the year prior was looking at how we can support each other through such a crisis point. And being at home and having a home was such an integral and central part of that struggle. Um, in terms of the effects that we felt in the last two years, we've seen the same things escalate in terms of homelessness and the public housing waiting list and rents rapidly rising all the while, while those supports and that infrastructure has declined. So even through the pandemic, we saw whole rents rising last year in some areas up to 20%, particularly for regional areas. And we know that that has an ongoing effect for people, whether it be international students who were locked out of um, COVID-19 supports or whether it's people who are coming out of incarceration and less likely to be able to find a private rental. So I think it's important to have those conversations between our groups, but also just to acknowledge that we all formed during that crisis period in a really, really incredible way. And we noticed that spark and we grabbed onto it to make sure we could be there for each other. So I think it's a really great way to see us through the next year um, and to do so with the idea of being post-lockdown. Thanks, Irene. I'll pass it on to Ness. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Support Network for International Students and how you formed and some of the challenges that you've experienced through the COVID-19 pandemic and that you've been responding to? Um, yeah, so the Support Network for International Students was formed in September of 2020. So it was really driven by the work of Migrante, which is the Filipino Migrants um, Organization, because we started distributing some food packages to students way back in March of 2020. And then we see the point of forming a coalition of organizations and individuals who will, um, you know, collectively act to fight for the rights and welfare of international students. So that's why we were formed. And um, basically, throughout the whole of the pandemic, the organizations and the individuals under the support network have been very active in terms of addressing issues that the international students have have faced and a big block of those is helping them file formal complaints to government agencies like you know the um, the ASQA, the Ombudsman, and the Consumer Affairs because they are being chased by debt collectors of something that they have not used as services. And also, we encountered a lot of issues around um, wage theft and of course issues around housing. So. As we go along in the network, we had more collaboration with with different formation, even um, abroad. And we came up with the agreement that we have to launch the campaign against education trafficking. So um, basically, this is the exploitation of international students for um, immigration agents, employers and education providers to profit from them. So um, that is an ongoing campaign at the moment. And I think going forward, we do see a lot of issues that revolves around housing, especially now that the borders are, are open 
and the international students will be facing that problem again of competing for work. Yeah, thanks, Ness. And um, if people haven't engaged with the system before, uh, the student housing system can be so predatory. So I'm really keen to hear more about the organizing that you've been doing. Um, now, Sarah, would you like to tell us a bit about Homes Not Prisons, your role there, and how your work's been shaped by the pandemic? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Sarah, and first of all, I just want to say that I'm coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people, and I am speaking sitting, living and everything on stolen land. So obviously the pandemic has been a huge hurdle for, you know, our campaign to really take off due to, you know, spending a lot of time at our residences, you know what I mean, at our homes or wherever we are residing. So like a lot of it had been online. But I was just thinking, so I threw myself off because I was thinking just before around the fact that the housing crisis has never been recognised as what the crisis is until the like the whole nation ended up experiencing it, you know, and, and the whole nation getting um, affected by the impacts of COVID. So I really threw myself off because I was just thinking about it. I was thinking, like, yes, we can talk about the post-COVID and, you know, the impacts of what has happened. Yes, a, a lot more people have been impacted because a lot more people who, I guess, who have been the working class or middle class or wherever they've come from have lost jobs and have, you know, found themselves in situations they hadn't been in before and find themselves on Centrelink benefits and and now, you know, understanding the struggle and the struggle, how real the struggle actually is, you know. But the housing crisis has been a ongoing thing for as long as I can remember. You know, I spent 15 years, you know, recurring homelessness and, like, and you just see the crisis is actually more visible. So I think the fact is, you know, if so many other people experienced, like I had noticed as well throughout COVID, you know, people actually starting to understand, oh, so this is how hard it is to, to you know, get by on Centrelink or, you know, um, people are literally, as we know, getting kicked out because they can't afford the rent, but nobody could afford anything because everybody was struggling, you know, um, in all different areas. And yeah, Homes Not Prisons has been, you know, a godsend that I'm really grateful that, you know, we are all able to get together and technology has advanced so we can still have these, you know, honest and very important conversations. Conversations is one thing, but, you know, action is another. And that's that's where my drivers is, you know, and I'm just like, want to start acting. You know, so we can get things done and things can change because this housing crisis is ridiculous and it shouldn't just have taken COVID and more and more people experiencing it to recognise it. You know, it's been an ongoing thing. Nothing's changed and, like, yeah, public housing needs to be built. Like if you ha- you can't just stop building something that, you know, like 50 years ago um, and then expect that to be enough when the housing crisis has only gotten bigger. And we're seeing more and more people incarcerated due to homelessness and more and more women losing their children. And, and the list goes on. There is so many more, um, so many more branches to this than, than just the structural stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Thank you for raising all of this because this is all stuff that I really want to touch on um, in the questions, Sarah. But I think just to open it up and bouncing off, Sarah, what you were talking about, I was wondering if I could hear from um, all three of you a bit about particular issues that have intensified under COVID but were you know, pre-existing that affected the people that you organize with and that you work with in the work that you do. So maybe I'll start with, with Sarah. I mean, it has affected because, you know, constantly being open, shut, open, shut, you know, the actual theme song I created for COVID was, especially for Victoria, was open, shut, <laughs> open, shut. 
cut them, you know, because that's exactly like what was happening. You can only work with what you've got. I hope it's brought time and stopped the expansion from being able to be completed in quicker time um, of the prison, of the Dane Phyllis Frost Centre. But I think that um, COVID's impacted a lot because I know that there could have been a lot more work that could have been done being able to, you know, see everyone face-to-face. But it still hasn't stopped us from meeting online and to doing what we can and what we can improvise, you know, and work with. But I feel that... Um, can get a lot more done when there's more hands together and everybody's kind of face-to-face and that's just, I guess that's the way that humans work. Especially when you're organizing together, it's just so much easier to make those decisions. Um, But yeah, I I was thinking, especially in terms of, you know, working with women who are impacted by the carceral system um, and you touched on some of those issues, but is there anything else that you wanted to add about how during COVID has impacted their housing issues? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, um, you know, when people are locked up, like this, the seriousness of the fact that people already struggle enough as it is when you're in prison regularly and you're already getting, you know, locked down for like 12 hours a day or, you know, all those kind of things. But then to be put into, like, you know, we were in isolation out in the community and I was thinking like, oh, this is luxury out here. Like, you know, we're in isolation and stuck at our, our homes. But what a luxury, you know, we've got all these things. We can literally walk outside if we want to. We've got internet, we've got this, we've got, you know, we're not being controlled. Well, you know, everyone's in different circumstances and there would be people who are experiencing family violence or, you know, situations that were dangerous for them, you know. But in relation to if I'm looking at, you know, where I am and, and like comparing that to the prison cell I was in, like to be isolated for the two years that we pretty much you know, in isolation for. Like, to me, that was fine because, to me, that was like, well, it's much better than being stuck in jail and in a cell. So for the people who are in jail, the people who people would have lost their houses because you don't, you lose all any income when you're in prison. And, like, um, like I was going to say, like, you know, everyone was, would have been locked down for probably 23 hours inside, you know, inside the prisons. And the fact is you can't have visitors. You couldn't even have visitors to your own home out in the community. So the impact of you know, everything that's been taken away from people already initially when you get locked up to having everything, I don't know the right word, like quadruple times. Yeah, compounded by the, <laughs> by the pandemic. Yeah. Bad, yeah. Thank you for that, Sarah. I might also ask Ness because I know that, you know, international students, but also people that are here uh, without permanent residence or without citizenship have been affected in particular ways by the pandemic, but these are also issues that have been um, long-standing as well around housing and those kinds of concerns. So specifically around housing, when it, when it comes to international students, we have observed that at the start of the pandemic, um, when it hasn't hit big yet, a lot of the students were still, you know, living in an accommodation where there is only one or two people inside the room. And then when it has hit already, like I think it was around just before the September, the the launching of the network, the students where we usually deliver the food packages were already living in their living areas. And then the amount of people in one house has doubled or tripled. And then there were so many movements happening throughout the pandemic. So we would see like in only a few months time that the students that we have been going through, because we cater to more than a thousand students here in the greater Melbourne and some in in the nearby um, rural areas, they move 
from one place to another. So further, they go further away from the city. In a matter of three months, they could move three times or four times. Yeah, so it's it's quite hard to track them down, actually. But because they are after the food packages, because the government is not providing anything, we're quite good in that. So, you know, we would sometimes we were like, oh, you were living in that eastern suburbs. Why are you here in the northern suburbs already? So that keeps on happening. And along with that is also the situation of those that all others that are on temporary visas, which basically those that are in on um, temporary working visas, because Migrant has been doing a lot of work with them anyway for so many years already. That has also been the trend, you know, because they're come think of they're they're um a bit okay as compared to international students because they have their contracts going on. But because when the pandemic hit, all of these temporary uh, visa holders have to accept the fact that a lot of them cannot even access the what's the thing the the covid supplement or the extra emergency pay the one that is for the workers <laughs> i forgot where you are paid 750 bucks a week uh yeah so apparently yeah there were a lot of um issues around em- employment contracts that not all workers even those that are on working visas were eligible for that yeah, mm-hmm. so, so yeah, that was the trend. And now, at the moment, there are a big number of students now that are staying in, um, say, Geelong, Ballarat, Gippsland, um, doing farm work. And the removal of the working limit, the work hours, has also an impact there. Yeah, because the, the international students now seem not to focus, you know, even if they're landlords, are not giving them, say, discounts if they are in financial hardship. And then later on, we would know that there's no contract that exists. So, yeah, we've got a few now that are in that situation. And because there is that push to work and work and more, more than 40 hours, some of them are even working 60 to 70 hours because there's no staff anyway. So they just, you know, they just put that on the side. And yeah, yeah. So, so they just pay a ridiculous amount in terms of um, their accommodation. Yeah, definitely. And I think that definitely speaks to the sort of intersecting crises of failing to support people who are temporary workers, uh, failing to support people who are not able to access Social Security payments. And yeah, this ability uh, of landlords and businesses to be extremely predatory in the way that they interact with people who are in a precarious residence status. So thank you, Ness. And um, Irene, I think I'll go to you to maybe give us a bit of a broad overview of some of what we've already discussed. So just thinking about the way that the housing landscape has kind of shifted in Australia through the pandemic and, and other things that have been intensified that we haven't touched on yet. Oh, yeah, I think it's really, really great to hear what you've mentioned, um, Sarah and Ness. I think Just as an overview, the membership of Rahu is incredibly diverse in terms of the kinds of tenancies people have, the kind of visas people have or don't have, um, and the the sort of like various ways that people are exploited, essentially, whether it's through work or through rent. In our last report, our annual report from last year, out of all of our cases, we had 97% of people who were in rental stress. And that was during the COVID supplement. That was because I think 
more than 45% of our cases were actually international students uh, last year alone. Um, but that said, most people, whether they're on COVID supplement or not, were paying on average 67% of their income in rent. So it's an incredibly tight pressure that is only increasing. So I think that is our st- like starting point is a real, real big issue that we'll keep seeing post-COVID. Um, because rent markets aren't declining at any rate and they're not being regulated. And, of course, they're helping to prop up the economy. And so over COVID, of course, those COVID supplements were going directly to landlords' pockets. The government knew that's what was happening. The government knew they wouldn't be giving it to certain people, um, which meant that we saw a huge crisis in terms of people, as you mentioned, Ness, moving from house to house, from couch to couch. We saw homelessness rise across the board, but particularly affecting international students most deeply. So it's hard to kind of summarise the broader thing. But for me, I I personally think that um, as we move out of COVID, we're going to need to start confronting the fact that rent is no longer affordable because it doesn't matter what kind of tenancy you're living in, the rent will keep rising unless you're in public housing, right? And that speaks to actually community housing models as well. They're not always capped. They're not always the amount that they're meant to be um, in terms of the percentage of your income. So I think across the board, there's many, many ways that the system is not being regulated properly. Um, I think what is a positive step, though, is that one thing that we saw change through the pandemic was those income supports and was that moratorium. And although it didn't cover everyone, it didn't cover every eviction. The fact that 20,000 plus people nationally were willing to strike on their rent payments forced the hand to actually get those protections throughout the pandemic. And I really doubt that they would have come into play if we hadn't taken that kind of action collectively. So I think going forward, we can look more to doing that kind of work together, whether it's supporting each other against an illegal eviction or against an incredibly exploitative slumlord or you know, working with people to make sure that their community housing provider is actually doing the bare minimum Um, or if your curtain rods haven't been fixed, you know, or if you have a sweltering home. So it's kind of like trying to make sure we can collectivise those issues that we all individually definitely are experiencing by discussing them together and by actually making it a collective issue no matter matter how much they try and individualise it. Yeah, absolutely. I think we might... We might move on to a question that I got from one of our guests, and this is uh, this is for Ness. Um, so, Ness, what has been some of the support provided for international students from the wider community or from government agencies, and what can be done to bridge the identity gap where a lot of people don't see them as equally in need of or deserving of support as citizens? Now, I think one that I could say that is very positive during this whole pandemic was the mutual aid that was happening. So there's a lot of those that have that are citizens that have permanent residency who are able to help um, the international students. So they were actually the ones who first delivered some form of support to material support to the international students at the very start of the pandemic, just how Migrante and Gabriela the Filipino organizations have done. But definitely, yeah, there is that big identity gap because um, in terms of government support, we all knew that way back in April, was that April in 2020, where Scott Morrison just said uh, all international students can just go home to their home countries without 
even you know looking at how many billions of dollars is being funneled by the international students to the Australian economy. So that was a very big shock, you know. And then the whole community rallied really um, for the international students, where that push from our groups, all of us here and um, the wider community, has led to the government to give. You know, it's not big; <laughs> it's <laughs> scraps, but there's still some form of support that was given starting September, October of 2020. So there was um, some grants that were given to community groups and Gabriela, um, the Filipino Women's Organization was one of those that were able to secure. So at least, you know, we don't have to beg in an everyday level for donations and and we know that it is coming from from the government you know but it's it's a very small amount um to cover i could tell you if you say we have a thousand more than a thousand that we go through from um the greater melbourne and um a few in the regional areas that would only account for like a maximum of 50 bucks each so that's that's very small, but I think it's very symbolic that this pandemic has been able to uh, make the international students visible to the wider community. Because for so long, even as in the Filipino community, as who have you know the the right visas to stay here, we're blind. Where are those international students? It was just during the pandemic that we were made aware that oops, they're here. And they're not really, you know, what we think that they are, you know, coming from well-off families back home. They're not. So there is that solidarity that was built between those that are um, here already permanently or are citizens and those that are on temporary visas. But there is that very big gap, not only in identity, but on all areas. And one thing also that I think that is very practical and economic in nature that should be addressed at the moment is that issue around the work limit. Because this pandemic has showed us that there's no point for immigration to do that surveillance, double surveillance on international students because they they already pay a hefty sum for their tuition fees and they are monitored in that area in terms of their education. But at the same time, on top of that, they are also being monitored as workers because they are only being given 20 hours a week to be able to work. Whereas the pandemic has showed that it could be done. They could be enrolled full-time, but they can still function as a full-time employee. So I think one thing that the network will be pushing in the coming months is really to get rid of that work limit. So at least, you know, they have some some relief. Yeah, and I think... What you've spoken about there as well, about the sort of invisibility of people that are working here without you know, permanent residency or protection and making sure that people are actually made to feel like they're a part of the community by this kind of organizing when government is keen to kind of leave them behind or universities treat people like cash cows. Yeah, it's really, really important. Um, I'll go to, to Rini with a question. Could I get you to speak a bit to the nature of media coverage of housing justice issues during the pandemic? And what are some of the concerns you've seen reflected and neglected? And how can you know, media contribute to productively uh, to, to these issues of housing justice? Yeah, absolutely, Priya. It's a great question. Um, I think it's been really interesting to see the coverage in the media, I guess, with 
the way that the media covers these kinds of issues and these stories, I think there's been some really big highlights over the last couple of years, particularly around homelessness. And, and we really were involved quite heavily in the IBIS eviction defence when the homelessness to homes package came out, when rough sleepers were being given places at ho- in hotel rooms which was a really stopgap measure and we then found out that um, essentially they were going to start evicting people from those hotels within like six months earlier than they were meant to. So being able to go and expose those kinds of issues and have the media supportive of exposing them, I think are really, really positive signs. Um, I do think there is a tendency though for media to cover the issue in like various ways and in various depths in terms of, yes, there's a homelessness crisis. Yes, there's a housing shortage. Yes, rent is really high. And like they definitely cover those issues and it's really important that they're there. But it's very rare to see the answer to that also being included. So I feel like, Rahu, it's been really great to see us in the media to talk about how we're supporting each other. But I do think that often that media narrative might not go far enough to say, Yes, landlords are mum and dads, but so are all of the renters that are having to live with the threat of eviction. Um, So to shift that narrative, I think, is a really important thing that Rahu and and a number of housing organisations are doing because, yeah, a big part of the shift in the paradigm is to to make sure that we can humanise renters as being people again rather than just a profit-making machine. I think this is also an important thing. I I hope there are some... Uh, you know, non-community media people here that are kind of listening to this. But it's always challenging, I think, to get renters' rights issues uh, platformed in a serious way and to make sure that this conversation continues going because, um, you know, these sort of things, as soon as they fall out of the news cycle, it becomes, you know, not very interesting to look at anymore. And it means that the political expediency uh, doesn't get the focus that it deserves. Uh, Nassar, I might go to you if you wanted to talk a little bit about the importance of the access to different kinds of housing and, you know, public housing, which is what Homes Not Prisons is campaigning for, and how that kind of relates to housing justice for people that are in contact with the carceral system. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Priya. So in relation to public housing, I really think that's the ideal housing, you know, because of the fact, like, if you look at it around the design of it, not in regards to structural, but in regards to, you know, it's more permanent, it's more affordable, it's more secure, and that's what people are needing. You know, that's what every single person deserves. You know, we are all living in this world and we all deserve to have feel safe and, and feel secure and, and have a roof over our heads, like, really. Like, why should people be sleeping in their cars or why should they be couch surfing or why should they be sleeping out on the street and then, you know, in the city where they've got bollards and different, like, spike things now so that people who are trying to find places of safety can't even stay safe because, you know, the government and the council have decided just to make anywhere that's anywhere in the city pretty much a place where people can't sleep now, you know, and and it's actually really sad. It's just the whole system breaks my heart really because it just makes me angry and, um, you know, and I really think the whole system needs to be dismantled, um, the whole thing, and then rebuilt, you know, especially with people today. Like, I don't know. I don't know if it's just, like, something I've started to recognise, but I've started to, you know, recently do a lot of thinking around the fact of I don't know the people predecessors before, like, you know, all of us and everybody, right, but, like, the, the way that things have changed through generations, through generations, you know, and then still, like, it's only getting worse. Things seem like they're getting better because, you know, we're not, 
at war and we're not in other situations, but what we are in is we are in like a capitalist war. <laughs> and that's like, you know, that's actually killing people literally, you know, and, and destroying people's lives and taking people away from people, you know, and children are losing their parents and parents losing their children regardless of whether they're still alive or they've passed away. I know I think I'm going off the topic, but yeah, I think with housing, the best housing is public housing because of the fact that it's got, it's the most affordable, you know, like I'm renting, but if I didn't have the job that I have now and I didn't have the job that I had previously, my whole entire Centrelink has always gone to rent because that's my priority now, but it's like I would not be able to move forward at all or do anything because I know that like, rent is like so expensive and most people, a lot of people on Centrelink, you know, we would be having these conversations if it wasn't for people who are experiencing financial troubles, you know, and on, you know, minimum wages or whatever you want to call them. What you've been saying really highlights these sort of systemic interconnections in like a colonial capitalist system that people are forced into positions where they're criminalized for their poverty and yeah. then and then they get into they're forced into the carceral system and you know it's not like they can access things it's like all survival that. crimes that's the thing yeah. everything that people are doing is trying to survive i remember thinking you know i am so grateful that during the pandemic i don't know how i would have survived i know i would have been straight back in you know inside because of the way that the police were policing covid everything like covid rules like to a T you know and and all the stuff that was going on around you know not wearing masks or not being at home or not doing this you know but the fact is like I was thinking I remember one time I had to leave my house because I had a really silly experience (laughs) about going to it but I had something that happened and I had to exit my house because I couldn't deal with like the fumes that were happening right because it was like okay it was essential oils and I panicked right anyway um so I got into my car (laughs) so I was just really sorry anyways I got into my car and I was like but I remember thinking when I lived in my car, because I've had so many different experiences with homelessness and different, you know, whether I've been sleeping here, couch surfing, sleeping out on the street, sleeping, you know, all these different situations for 15 years. There's so many different types of ways of living on the streets. But, like, I remember being in my car and I was thinking, or at least I have a home now I can go to, but I was really upset because I was thinking, if I can't go home, you know, and Kmart's closed 24 hours because now it closes at 12 o'clock, you know, and the, the pokies are shut. Like, these were all the places I would go and sleep in my car because they were lit up you know, and they yeah. were had people constantly movement, you know what I mean? So it just felt yeah. like a better place for a female to sleep somewhere where it's lit up because I didn't really want to sleep in, like, dark. And I noticed, like, there are so many people who were struggling so hard prior to COVID and it even exacerbated, yeah, what, putting people into a hotel just because, they're not because they wanted to help the people, but because they just wanted to stop the spread of the COVID, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that was so disturbing in itself. Yeah, and it's been very um, stopgap, all of these measures. So actually, I think like that's, a, that's probably a good spot to start talking a little bit about, you know, the kind of organizing that's required uh, to combat all of these issues and what comes next and what's planned next for your organization. So Irene, I might jump to you on that. Sure, yeah. Thanks, Priya. Um, I think it's a really, really exciting question because being able to organize in amongst all of these what feel like overwhelming issues, I think is like an incredibly exciting prospect to keep doing now that things have opened up slightly. I don't, I don't say that in any way that means that COVID is over. We definitely know it's not. But I think there's so many different ways that we can organise together now that we've experienced organising online almost entirely for two years 
being able to keep connecting with people we've never met before, people who live in our streets who also rent, people who share the same uni or the same campus, whether they work at the uni, whether they're students, whether they're the cleaners, whether they're the hospitality workers, almost all of them will be renting, right? So I think being able to like intersect in every possible way around exactly what you've described, Sarah, as a war against capitalism. Like we have a class war on our hands and we have for hundreds of years in terms of who owns and who rents. And it is an incredibly have and have not question um, or divide, I guess, right? So like I think for, for Rahu, what we're looking at doing is to continue building our local branches to make sure we have a really, really strong structure that is always led by the rank and file, by our membership, and we connect through our neighbourhoods, we go to like our local libraries and our local like council buildings and, and actually like do the basics with each other about, hey, did you experience this as well? I've just faced having to get the landlord to fix the broken window for a fourth time or whatever it might be. Um, we're doing it ourselves and I think we're the best people to be doing it, right, because we're the ones living it, we're the ones experiencing it and that applies to like whether, whether that be international students or whether that be people who've come out of incarceration, um, I think being able to support each other when we know and have lived those experiences is really we will have the most investment in seeing it change, right? So I think being able to have those conversations, being able to be confident that you can learn about this stuff yourself and you can share that with other people um, is a really, you know, education's the first step with it, of course. And, like, I'm still learning heaps and heaps of things every day because I didn't come to this as a lawyer. I didn't come to it as a union secretary. I came to it as a renter on the dole. And so many of us have like learned through that experience. One other thing I'd like to just note as well is that our renters' rights support team are incredible. And most of them have come from learning themselves um, and teaching themselves about how to, how to handle this stuff. And yes, the RTA, the like Residential Tenancies Act has been changed for the first time in like 30 years and there's some better protections in it, but it is only one aspect and organising is such a stronger aspect of getting better protections for each other. Like the laws can only go so far, they will always uphold private property, particularly in this country, and we can use them to our advantage as much as we can by knowing what our rights are, but Organising with each other is where it gets really exciting because there are five renters to every landlord in this country. We pay hundreds of millions of dollars each year and it's all come from our wages. The idea that we can collectivise that in the millions of people that are renting and if every single one of us gets our neighbour and our family friend and our co-worker um, and, you know, the person at the cafe that you see every couple of days to join the union... We have a serious fight on our hands and we actually have the ability to really change it. Yeah, that's so powerful, Irene. I think organizing events like this as well is a really great way to kind of open the door to this cross-organizational you know, coalition building um, to bring people together that are doing housing justice work from so many different areas. So, Ness, I might get you to, to respond to that too. You know, what's next for uh, Support Network for International Students and, and what are your thoughts on organizing and building from here? 
I think you know, the beauty of the pandemic is all that visibility that it opened up for these vulnerable groups, such as those that are on temporary visas. So in terms of grassroots organizing and um, the mutual aid that is happening, that's really the core of all our organizing activities. I agree with all of you about, you know, the, this system will never change to favor us. You know? It's always going to be on the side of the capitalist, of the capitalist system. But um, there's always the strength in the collective. So um, we'll continue to to push, you know, in every area, even just the small details of how we could help those that are on temporary visas. We're learning a lot also from them. Um, there are a lot of areas that we don't know prior to the pandemic. And um, just seeing them being organized into organization, they are not much visible at the moment because of that removal of the, of the work limit. Um, but definitely they started to join organizations and they usually, you know, you know are in contact and wanted to, to learn more also because they are, these are the future settled migrants that we are catering to, you know, they, no international student comes to Australia and just wants to study. No, <laughs> they really want to settle there. Their, their main goal, first goal, is to have a permanent resident status. So, you know, we're on the right track on that and also be able to, I think, come to a political um, education part, you know, where it transcends that part where we are just giving them some form of help but also them realizing that there's more strength when they themselves are being organized, unionized. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty positive in going forward with these movements that we have. Yeah, no, that's excellent. And I think that really speaks to the excellent work that Migrante has been doing as well around, you know, raising awareness within your own communities and you know, building that political education. And I really look forward to, to seeing what you're up to next. And uh, sorry, I just forgot the, the the portion also of people that are on temporary visas that are impacted by family and domestic violence. That's really that's really something that needs to be addressed. So um, prior to the pandemic, no matter how many meetings and formations I sat in in terms of advocating for policy reform, it's not going nowhere because we are not seeing them. Really. So now that they're out in the open, and I could tell you that for the past one year and a half that the network has existed, there are like three times the number of international students that came to Gabriela um, to ask help because they are in an abusive situation. Of course, some of them have stayed because of the economic reasons, mm. but a good number of them has been able to remove themselves from the abusive relationship. And um, we're quite okay that there is a community behind them that support them. Yeah, even yeah. if it's more on the emotional side rather than the economic side. Yeah. yeah, no, that's so important to be able to provide not just the tangible support, um, but also other supports, you know, whether that be community counseling, feeding people and the kinds of things that really get left behind um, by state and federal governments when they don't put funding into these things. So thank you. And um, I know that we've got to, got to wrap this part up shortly, but Sara, um, what's next for Homes Not Prisons and, and how do you think we can keep building on this and building towards, um, you know, more public housing and housing justice? 
Um, I think that we all should stay together, you know, and, and continue to collaborate and to continue to work together, you know, to strengthen numbers. I also you know there's other housing places that have the same vision, I guess, in regards to like, I don't know, I, I went to a, um, a launch the other day and I think, you know, grabbing them on board as well, you know, and starting to bring all the different aspects of what it means. Like, there's so many different people here right now, you know, standing up for different different parts of, you know, housing and everyone's impacted by different things, you know. We've got international students and then we've got, you know, people who are renting but are on Centrelink and then we've got people who are still sleeping rough and then we've got, you know, people who are working though they're just working to pay the pay their rent, you know, and like and constantly there's so many different things, you know, you're seeing, you know, we're seeing our First Nations people constantly battling the entire system system you know when the lands are theirs you know what I mean like they should have first priority to like housing you know and um I don't know the list is endless but if we all come together you know even people who haven't experienced homelessness and stuff like that but you know are becoming allies and you know standing in solidarity you know and I think that the best thing that we can all do is fight this good fight you know we're coming from stopping expanding DPFC but we're also talking about stop putting money into the prison industrial complex and stop why increase student loans and like you know why increase every single thing right because of a pandemic that we all didn't have control over either but yet all of a sudden you're able to pull money out to buy I know missiles or whatever and and a submarine you know all these random Mm -hmm. things right but like the money's not being diverted and put into resources for the people who are actually literally like scrounge like you know what's the word the they're living, but they're not living life. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you've got a heartbeat, but how can you live? Like, and I've always thought I didn't want to get born to to go to school, to get educated, to like work and then to die. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm sure that's like everybody, like we only live once. We might as yeah. well, we should all have an opportunity to embrace the world. Like we go, you know, but we don't get that because we're stuck in a greedy, you know, capitalist society and the basic human needs aren't being met. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that, because I think it really underscores the fact that things like poverty um, and homelessness are political choices that are being made at the upper levels of government. And organizing together is a way that we kind of bring political consciousness to, to more people, get them thinking about their own situation, thinking about their neighborhoods, thinking about the people they're in relation with. So thank you all. Uh, Irene, Ness, and Sarah, and by extension, your organizations, Rahu, Support Network for International Students and Homes Not Prisons, for making this time to share your expertise and wisdom tonight. I also want to just thank our brilliant team of moderators and behind-the-scenes support, and do tune in anytime to 3CR855 AM to find out more. You can also head to 3cr.org.au, and we're currently doing our February subscriber drive, so you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe and become part of our community. If you've just joined us, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR and we were tuning into the online forum that was hosted a couple of weeks ago, Housing Justice After Lockdown. We'll have links to all of the relevant sites that you can go and find out more about uh, on 3cr.org.au forward slash city limits. Yeah, or you could just jump online and search up any of those organisations if you want to join Rahu. I'm pretty sure it's rahu.org.au. Uh, SNIS, the Support Network for International Students, I believe at the moment only has a Facebook page, so you can totally go there and look them up. And there's homesnotprisons.com.au that you can go to and highly recommend signing that open letter to 
stop the expansion of the Dame Phyllis Frost maximum security women's prison. Um, I don't know if you know this, and it wasn't mentioned in the forum, but a nice little tidbit about Homes Not Prisons was that it was started in response to the proposed expansion to that prison, while as most 3CR listeners and I'm sure regular City Limits listeners are already aware, you know, Victoria spends the least amount of money per capita on public housing. So it's all about kind of redirecting that funding and it's all in the name, Homes Not Prisons. Yeah. So, yeah, next up we're going to a Q&A that was – who was that hosted by, Zeb? Uh, that was hosted by Alex, a member of Rahu's Renters' Rights Support Team. Um, so, yeah, we put together some of the questions that we thought um, sparked interesting discussion um, and we'll go to that audio now. The Renters' Rights Support Team is the branch of the union that essentially supports our members with their um, challenges they might be facing in any form of housing. So we would support our members with bond claims, um, anything from repairs to receiving notices to vacate to evictions, and we have the capacity to handle some more complex matters. But as Irene said before, none of us are lawyers. We're all sort of volunteers. We've all come to the role from being renters, um, from facing the same kind of systemic pressures that we talked about during the panel and, and most of us have faced. There was one question before, which is just a general question, which I can speak to while I sort of wait for any other specific questions um, around people being afraid to challenge things when it comes to their landlords and, and agents. I think one of the most important things to think about is, is what Irene was talking about before, is thinking about that kind of collective power. So Rahu also has local branches, and that's a really good place to start if you join the union to find people in your sort of neighbourhood who might be facing the same problems, who might have the same real estate and try and organise against them because the pressure from multiple people is always going to be more than yourself. Having said that, there are a number of ways that you can stand up for yourself, I guess, as a renter, like some general pieces of advice are always keep a paper trail going, always try and use official forms from consumer affairs if you're looking to get repairs done using breach notices and things like that and if you join the union we're happy to help you do that kind of thing as well from our perspective so uh priya have a question i just thought that i would jump in with something that didn't get answered in our session but i thought maybe you and um irene might want to speak to it so chris from the geelong housing action group did ask about a focus on the Finland housing first model and what panelists thought about that. But I thought maybe you and Irene might want to speak to that too. Sure. I might throw that one to Irene because I'm not 100% across the Finland housing model. Sure thing. So I, I and look, I, I may be a little bit dusty on this, but from memory, I think there are a few really, really great housing models, including in Sweden, um, Finland and, and parts of Nordic Europe that look more towards public housing models or what's the equivalent to that in our version of things here. In terms of having more accessible, more affordable housing as a sort of public resource, um, and please, Chris, jump in if, if I'm mistaking that model there. I think if it is that kind of model, then, yeah, absolutely, it would be amazing to see more of that happen. Um, I do think there's a pretty big issue at the moment with the narrative changing towards social housing rather than the distinction between public and community housing, which are two very different things. 
I think in terms of the models that we've seen across the world, particularly with a you know Eurocentric focus, we've seen through the pandemic Barcelona are uh, reappropriating vacant private owned houses and apartment blocks. Um, they were basically taken back by the state from landlords that were leaving them vacant. We have more than 100,000 vacant homes just in Victoria alone. It would be amazing to see them actually become useful to people. So I think there's lots of different ways that we could we could look at actually providing better housing for people. Um, but yeah, please jump in there if I've misunderstood the model there. I'm, I'm a bit out of touch with the Finland model, but if it's something like that one, then I think it needs to be supported. We don't have national housing policy in this country and we haven't since the Depression. And that's important to remember. I think it's incredibly worrying that that's the case. And the federal government will always push it down to states' responsibility. But we need to see national like federal government to actually meet if not much more than each state's funding into public housing next question um so from rachel i might pass this back to irene as well how does rabbi partner and work in the regions and how can we try and build that bridge better i guess from my perspective we do have members in regional areas but the casework team would just sort of support anyone regardless of where they were. Having said that, we're mostly based in Melbourne. Did you want to try and talk a, bit, a little bit more about regional and rural areas, Irene? Yeah, I think we do have a huge number of members in regional areas. Our membership is predominantly around the state. And yeah, we have high density in, in the inner Melbourne. But what's been really cool to see is that people are getting in touch with each other, like particularly in the last six to eight months where rents rose dramatically, like by 20% in Geelong and Ballarat and regional areas. So our general membership delegates, because they are part of the general membership in terms of the, the regional renters we have at the moment, our general membership delegates have been calling folks and making sure that they can get put in touch with each other. You know, people are more spread out, but like ideally the more people can get in touch with each other, even if it's an hour away, if it's half an hour away, whatever it might be, to be able to meet on Zoom like this and say, hey, we've had the same issue. The rents have risen extremely. Like we've had a number of cases, as you know, Alex, that have come particularly around regional areas as well. So I guess to sum up, to start a branch, you need five people. That's pretty much it. And like from there, building up those connections with each other, I think would be incredible to see this year because, yeah, regional renters are really, really feeling it deeply and so much because of COVID as well. Yeah, I think that's really important to note that not just in Victoria, like regionally and rurally in, in other states as well, the private rental market is is fucked basically, to use a short language. So the next question is how can we create change of standards around the behaviour of real estate agents who can seemingly act with total impunity or is it very hard to seek recourse when they lie or behave poorly or is that a statement or ombudsman issue? I think that the answer to this is is a relatively simple one. It has multiple layers, but I think that knowing your rights as a renter is, is really important and understanding how to use some of the processes that are in place to try and use leverage against real estate agents. There's not a lot that you can really do against real estate agents in terms of them, you know, like not responding to emails, unfortunately. You could report them to CAV or something like that, but it would have to be quite egregious 
in terms of what they were doing, basically illegal. The best way I think to do it is is through collective pressure and also individual pressure. They they tend to respond to things when they're done with a bit of an official bent. So sometimes we'll represent some of our members and they'll be getting nowhere in terms of engaging with their real estate agent. If you even use things like the official Rahu email, and I mean, you know, it's we're only a very small organisation, but it starts to make them sort of take notice a little bit because that's kind of the power of collective action, you know. Um, it, it sort of implies that we've got a lot more resources behind it than just one person. So it's, I would say it's a little bit about that collective push And unfortunately, I guess those kind of legislative level things take a lot of time. And I think we have a follow-up from Chris from Geelong Housing Action Group. Chris, did you feel comfortable taking yourself off mute and saying what you wanted to ask or would you like me to read out? Happy to take that on board. Thank you very much. This is excellent. We have a lot of issues around social housing. We feel that it's uh, privatisation by stealth. I'd be very interested to see what Irene thinks about it. And we're also very concerned about the urban renewal programs. There's a couple going on. There's one in Geelong called the Ormond Road, Tate Road Redevelopment. And it would appear that the tenants aren't being consulted properly. There's a similar situation with in Port Melbourne. I can't remember the estate but people just basically got eviction notices or notices saying that their residences were going to be upgraded under urban renewal and that they'd have to relocate. And particularly with the situation in Port Melbourne, it would appear that the buildings are okay, they just lack adequate maintenance. And again, this is an issue that is long-standing with public housing. Comments? particularly from my Rooney, would be appreciated. Thank you. Thanks for speaking to that, Chris. It's, um, yeah, really, really great to hear that perspective. And I totally, totally agree with that phrase about it being privatisation by stealth. I think, like, that's very well said. Um, the urban renewal project's been happening for years now. We've seen it happen across inner Melbourne suburbs as well. And we work pretty closely with groups like the Safe Public Housing Collective who do an incredible amount of research and um, activism around stopping those kinds of underhanded practices. Um, I think to speak to the question around social housing, community housing and public housing, we do take a pretty firm stance on that in Rahu in that we want to see public housing built and we're explicit about using that term because the narrative has been shifted and it's been tried to be pulled over our eyes to talk more about this merged idea of community housing and public housing being part of this banner of social And it is a problem. Um, One of our first demands that we ever voted up in the first year we were born was that we want to see public housing built and to stop the private sector rot. And that's directly talking to the issue of these community housing models that are meant to be capped at 30% of people's incomes. And we're seeing more privatised models that look at doing 75% private dwellings to the 25% community housing dwellings in in one building. So massive property developers are going to start making heaps of money. It's the model that they used in the US to see huge landlords exist and they build them incredibly poorly, incredibly dangerously, and we end up seeing things like what's happened in the UK um, with the Grenfell Tower occur. So renewal projects, I, I guess, try 
under the guise of saying we will upgrade this building to then displace hundreds and hundreds of tenants. We want to make sure that we can put our feet down, we can join public housing tenants in actually putting a stop to it by staying in place and and saying no. Um, So I really appreciate you asking that question. It's a really important one. And thank you for your comments. It's one of our principles as well. We never refer to it as anything other than public housing. So thank you for taking the same perspective. So, Chris, there's actually a question in the chat that maybe you're well-placed to answer. Are you able to explain the difference between public, social and community housing? Yeah, the differences are public housing is housing that is owned and maintained by the state government. And in this case, it's not nationalised. And I agree with what Irene was saying. It should be a national process with uniform regulation. Uh, Community housing tends to be what they call not-for-profit organisations. And we always debate that because we say you have to make a profit to pay the bills, pay the staff, etc., And affordable housing, I think that was the other one, is where land is handed over to private developers to build so-called affordable housing. Now, we're not entirely sure about what happens to that housing, and that's a concern. And part of the other problem is that the regulations that the state government has put in place favour and Irene would get this, favour the developers. There aren't enough regulations that control and manage what private developers and community-based organisations can do. There's already a problem where community-based housing cherry-pick off the public housing tenant list and people who are in the housing If they ask, the stories we've had, if they ask for maintenance to be done, they often get evicted. And it's what Irene said as well. There are issues around people being afraid to request maintenance and so on. But I know I'm delighted to see that you're helping to defend those people. Thank you. I hope that helped. Uh, That was a very helpful, very thorough definition. Um, If anyone has any other questions... I put the email just above, it's organise at rahu.org.au and we'll be able to answer your question in more detail there. You've been listening to City Limits on 3CR, 8.55am and we've been tuning in to an online forum hosted by Rahu and 3CR. So yeah, next week is Transport Week and Kevin will be back from his holiday tanned and glowing and ready for action and hopefully Zeb and I can get a sleep in. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> in the meantime, we'll continue drinking our coffee and grinding away in the city. See you next week to all our listeners and stay tuned for Anarchist World this week. You're on 3CR Community Radio. See you, Zeb. Bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.